explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove that I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make any judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. And then God will give to each one whatever praises due. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one, another, of, one of your leaders at the expense of another. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? You think, you've already, you, think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for, when we would, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, sometimes I think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. But you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Even now we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living, and we bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us, and yet we, treat, we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children, for even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you, so I urge you to imitate me. That's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. Some of you have been, become arrogant thinking, I will not visit you again, but I will come and soon if the Lord lets me. And then we'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not... So this chapter really serves as a corrective as these people are getting off course. And as I thought about this, I thought, this thought came to my mind. When I, when I first learned how to do roofing, okay, to install a roof on somebody's house with asphalt tiles, uh, I worked with this crotchety old roofer. And this guy had years of experience. He was like a master roofer. Um, and if you're a roofer, you're just kind of crotchety. You're just kind of like irritated because you're always walking on a slope all day long. And you don't realize it just kind of imbalances you as a person after, after a, long, a long time. And uh, so he was just sort of, you know, the way he was. And, and I, I wanted to learn from him because he, he was really good. He was like the fastest roofer I'd ever met. And uh, so he's teaching me how to do it. And we began on my first uh, roof laying it out. And you start you know, on the edge of your roof. And when you're putting down these asphalt tiles, I don't know if you, you've seen these asphalt roofs that people have, like tab, three-tab roofing or architectural and uh, they, they come in these little bundle sections of asphalt about this big. They're like that long. And they come in these tightly wrapped plastic packages of asphalt roofing. They're like 100 pounds each. They're so heavy. 
So generally, you get rooftop delivery in this day and age. I have done roofs where we had to cart them up ladders. Ugh. And uh, so we start laying out this roof, you know, and, and you're putting down all these small pieces, and you were kind of right in the middle of the roof. And we began, he, he, we began on the edge of the, of the roof there, and he had me snap lines. You use, you use string lines in construction because the shortest point, right, is a line. And you pull it tight, and it's just straight. You know, all the way from ancient Egypt, we're still using it to today. And... So we start on the edge of the roof, and we measure up like a foot, snap a line across the whole roof, you know, and he's all, he's all fidgety about it and all precise, like it's got to be just perfect, and on this long run with the roof slope, like the line's sagging a little bit, you know, so he's like straightening it out and eyeballing it, and then we snap the line. Uh, chalk line is a string with chalk on it, and then when you stretch it across the surface and snap it, it leaves the chalk. It's really cool. So it's a chalk line. So then... We measure up like four feet and put a couple lines. And I was thinking to myself, let's just get to roofing, man. Come on. Like, this is such a pain. And, you know, here I am, the amateur, the first timer saying, like, there's got to be a better way. Come on. You're just taking so much time out of our, you know, we got to get going. And it's just, it's funny, you know, as I, as I look back on it. Because what happens when you're putting down these shingles is that from where you're working, it's really impossible to see if you're staying on course. Like you put down courses of roofing, right? So if I'm putting down like a 100-foot run of, of shingles and I'm just going for it with my gun, the gun has a gauge on it, so you just set it down and put your gun up to it and then nail it, nail it off with your uh, nail gun. And uh, you just kind of go along and you usually have a guy throwing to you. Like that was me, like the grunts just sitting there on the roof holding the, the shingles on your, on your lap and kind of just sliding them down the roof to the guy. And then the roofer's kind of going along and nailing them. And... Uh, when you're in the middle of that 100-foot run, you really can't tell if, you, if, you're being, if you're really straight. You know, it's like when you're hanging a picture. You, you ever, like, hang a picture on the wall, and you're, like, right up against it, and you're like, ah, how does it look? You know, but you can't tell. You got to ask somebody behind you, does that look straight? And, you know, they're always like, well, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not, well, no, it doesn't. You know, and you're like, come on, come here and hold this. Like, let me, let me go look at it, you know? And so when you're just, like, right in the middle of it, you don't have the right perspective to see, like, if it's straight. When, when, you're, when, you're, when I'm sitting in the middle of the roof, I can't tell if I'm staying on course, really, because I'm just right in the middle of the work. I need somebody like, like this guy that has a better perspective to kind of stand back and say, yeah. And so these lines kind of served as guidelines to keep us going in the right direction as we're laying this roofing, because as soon as you get one row crooked, the rest follow. Like, you're building on these rows, right? So it's like, and you maybe have seen it, but some guys get really funky on roofing, and it's like, you know, very creative. A lot of, like, artistic license as they're laying these things down because they totally screw up their first couple rows. And it just makes a mess of the rest of it. So as you're starting out, you really have to just, like, stay focused on what you're doing. And, and then these guidelines are help, helping to keep you on course. And... It's just like in, you know, in life. You're right in the middle of something. When you're just right in the middle of your life, of relationships, of a church, sometimes you can't see, like, if you're staying on course. Sometimes you can't really see the, the big picture. You need somebody in your life that can kind of say, like, hey, here's some perspective on where you're standing. And so, as I thought about this chapter, this, this chapter is Paul bringing some correctives to these people that were starting to get off course. There's a term called mission drift. Um... And uh, it's the idea in the nonprofit. You start a nonprofit because it's like, save the children. 
we're going to save the children, you know, and uh, it's called Save the Children, and here's what we're going to do, and this is our mission, and you're excited, and you start raising funds, and you're, you're saving the children, and then, you know, five years in, it's like, Save the Children becomes fundraise for Save the Children, becomes your mission statement, like, it's easy to get diverted from your mission of, like, focusing on saving the children to just fundraising, because you got to keep the org going. And so in, in the nonprofit world, this idea of mission drift is something that everybody's kind of always fighting against. Like, how do we not get distracted from what we're trying to do? You know, like I think of uh, cancer research and the NFL. I mean, just what is going on with that? How much money did you spend to make pink shoes and towels and mouthpieces and coach gear? And like, just save that and tell us that you donated that to cancer research. Don't make the pink stuff. And the NFL says, well, we sell it as a, you know, to, to raise funds for just like, ugh. Don't, don't read about it. You're just going to be sad if you hear about how much money they raised. But uh, this idea of mission drift is you're just getting off course. And, and, and there's sort of like natural things that occur as you're going along and, and trying to pursue what God has called you to do. The things of life come up and just kind of start to distract you from where you're trying to focus. So you need somebody you need guidelines. That's what these chalk lines were doing for us. And so Paul is calling the Corinthians back to these guidelines that God established. Paul was the one that God established them through, in fact. And some other teachers had continued that work, like we've learned. And some of these so-called wise Corinthians have pretentiously passed judgment on Paul. They've said, well, he was not good enough anymore, you know. Yeah, he got us started, but we've surpassed this guy. They're presuming that that his lifestyle and presentation don't live up to the Corinthian wisdom, which begins to pull the church off course. So Paul strongly corrects them and sends Timothy to help get them back on course. So that's, that's, this is my idea. Is God sent, God's judging them. God's correcting them. God's admonishing them through the teachers that he's given so that they'll grow, so that they'll connect with the purpose for which they receive Christ is to know God and receive power to live the life that he's called them to live. And that power that we receive from God is, in, is going to help us grow. That's what God intends for it to do. So point number one is our pretensions, our unwarranted judgments. Paul, Paul says to them, uh, Apollo, look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. And he, he uses two words here, a servant and a steward, Okay. He says, we're servants. And this, this word is, is not the typical word that they use for, uh, like, deacon. Diakonos is another word for, like, serving, serving tables, doing manual labor. This is a different word that sort of talks about somebody who's like a manager, somebody who's given a job to serve someone. So this is your job. You need to manage the, these people or manage this thing. So you're a servant in, as it relates to that. So it actually grants you some authority. In the, in the Corinthian mind, this is somebody who has authority based on the job they've been given. And he also says, I've been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. I've been made a steward of the gospel. So his stewardship, the thing that he needs to steward, the valuable thing that he's, he's making sure stays clear for God is the gospel message. He calls it the mystery. And just, just to be clear, I know I've said this before, but God's mysteries are like mystery novels. You don't read mystery novels because you never figure out what happens and they're just like unclear. God's mysteries are like that because he wants you to know what happened. God's mystery is something that he's revealing. 
He wants his mystery is that all people are considered his children by faith in Christ. And he's revealing this mystery through the gospel and through the people that are announcing it. So when Paul talks about the mystery of God, he's not talking about some secret cult or secret religion. He's talking about what God is revealing to the world, which is, it's kind of confusing to use that word, you know. God works in mysterious ways, we say. But does that mean God's revealing to you what he's doing? (laughs) And so he says, you guys are a value. You guys have passed judgment on me. I don't even judge myself. I'm just doing the job that God had given me, and God's going to judge me for it. He's not just kind of standing there saying, who cares what you think? But what he is challenging is their evaluation of him based on their own wisdom, based on how the Corinthians do things. And Paul's also challenging their culture and their cultural idea of wisdom. And we know this because of the way that he talks about these things, because of the words that he uses and the way he talks about evaluation and the fact that we've already talked about the, the, the philosopher Seneca and we've talked about Stoicism. These, these, these were the sort of main frames of thought in, in their day and they were pursuing these ideas. And Seneca has this to say about examining it's interesting. Socrates, let me step back. Socrates, you guys probably heard him, you know. Socrates famously has this quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. Okay? So, I like that quote. I've used that quote. I've said to people, examine your life, you know. The question is, like, who, what, how do you, what do you, what's your standard? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the how are you examining yourself? with like a very unclear, like very low standard, very loose examination. And uh, are you the standard of examining yourself? I think there's like a conflict of interest there if you were like going to sit down and like say, let me really do this and examine myself. Seneca says it this way, the, the philosopher that was very popular. Can anything be more excellent than this practice of thoroughly sifting the whole day? And how delightful the sleep that follows the self-examination. How tranquil it is. How deep and untroubled when the soul has either praised or admonished itself. And when the secret examiner and critic of self has given report of its own character. I avail myself of this privilege. And every day I plead my cause before the bar of self. This is, this is how you end up on one of the first episodes of American Idol. Like, those guys that are just real, that's when it's the most fun to watch, that show. When they walk in, and they, their parents and themselves have told them their whole lives, oh, you're such a good singer. You're the best, baby. You're going to do it. Like, go show them. And they're horrible, you know? Like, they're so, so bad. And the judges are just, like, cringing and, like, cutting them off. Like, you're, you're terrible, you know? And there, at least there's one valiant soul there to tell them, like, you're the worst singer who's ever sung a word in the history of the world, you know? And the other people are like, oh, don't treat him so bad. Don't, don't talk to him. You know, that's what they need to hear at that point, honestly. And they march out saying, these guys don't know what they're talking about. You know, and then they interview with the little other guy with the messed up hair. And they're like, he's like, what do you think? And they're like, oh, they're just fools. You know, I'm going to make it. <laughs> and it's like, to me, that's just, I don't know why that's so fun to watch. But... uh <laughs> This is sort of the end, I mean, in a sense of self-examination. They've kind of put themselves in a bubble. And no one, no one like, has ever spoken into their life from a, from a bigger perspective. You know, like, yeah, in your family, you're a good singer. You know, but like, 
outside your house, there, like there's some good singers out, out there and you need to kind of compare yourself to, you know, if, you, if this is where you want to go, like let's look at the bigger playing field here. Maybe get someone that knows what they're talking about to kind of give you some advice. So that's what God is doing through Paul in this church. Paul, Paul is evaluating this idea of evaluation. The fact that he says, you guys, <clears throat> I don't evaluate myself. And what we know here is that they, they, the word evaluation is not just like they're making a decision, but they're passing judgment on Paul and saying he doesn't, he doesn't measure up. And Paul says, no, no, you don't evaluate me for the job that I'm doing. God's my evaluator. I don't, I'm not evaluating myself. And Paul has spent his whole life, uh, if you don't know his story, he was a Pharisee, which was a very strict sect of Jew, the Jewish religion that had to follow every single law perfectly. And so he grew up, he knows how to evaluate himself. <laughs> and when he, says, when he says to them, I'm not even aware of, my conscience is not convicting me of anything. I'm not aware of anything that I'm doing wrong. That doesn't mean that I'm right. God's my judge. So I think Paul, when he says that, he's, he's probably doing a very, fairly thorough self-examination. But needless to say, we need somebody with better perspective to examine us. When, we, when you think about, think about it in this, in this way, if you're watching an NFL game, why do they need referees? Why don't you just let the players make the call? Did you catch it? Oh, of course. Did you have both feet in? Uh-huh. Was that holding? Yes. Was it intentional grounding? Yes. Like, why wouldn't we trust the players to say that? You know, I've thought about that watching an NFL game because every time there's a call, the player's like, no, I caught it. For sure, I caught it, you know? And I thought to myself, we should just have a thing that says, like, tell the truth on whether or not you caught it or you're going to get a worse penalty. <laughs> and if you're telling the truth, you get, like, a bonus. And if you're lying about it, you get, like, docked or something. I don't know. It just wouldn't work. You need somebody who, who's going to evaluate because in the midst of the game, of course they think they caught it. And, he, and they're not lying necessarily. Like when they catch the ball, they think they caught it. And we watched the slow-mo replay of the like tip of the ball going bing, off the ground. You know, They didn't really feel that. They just thought they caught it You know, in the exhilaration of the moment. But we wouldn't trust them to evaluate themselves. It's, it's sort of an absurd idea just to think that every day you could sit down with a bar of self and say, how'd you do, self? It's, it's, it's interesting. And, and so these, these Corinthians have adopted this idea of whoever I, whoever I uh, connect myself to and the elevation of them in our society elevates me. And Paul is not elevated in their society. This is something that culturally they respect the, re- the rhetoric speakers you know, I know there's a word for that, rhetoricians or rhetoristicians. I just can't figure it out. But they respect people who can use rhetoric really well, unlike me. And they don't like, like the lowest is working with your hands. Now, Paul is somebody who makes tents. Paul is somebody who worked with his hands in the marketplace, who went to the marketplace, and he's working with uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and they're, and they're making tents. And He's, he, he says at different times, I worked until Timothy or whatever showed up and then I went and, and preached the gospel or I worked to support myself. And in Corinth, he made a special effort to support himself in Corinth so that he didn't fall into their cultural thing because if, if someone started supporting Paul, they would feel like they could sort of call the shots for how Paul sort of, when he taught or what he taught and they would sort of, you know, be his patron and he owed allegiance to them. So Paul very wisely says to the Corinthians later on, I never took anything from you guys. 
I, I supported myself the whole time so that you would know what it's like to follow God. And that's what's going on here is, is Paul is... Paul is somebody who's sort of, they've passed judgment on this guy. Like, he's dirty. He's a tent maker. He works with his hands. He's not like one of these lofty, like, performers, you know? Like, he's not on the radio. He doesn't wear nice suits. He, does, he, just, he just doesn't measure up to our standard of wisdom. And so they had passed judgment on him. And so Paul is reminding them, no, you're not the judge. God's, God's the judge of what he's called us to do. And he's the one that sent us to you. God's challenging them even with a guy like Paul. He's not sending him their perfect teacher. And so Paul says he's also a steward of this, of this mystery of God. They're given the responsibility to explain and teach what God is revealing. And so God, God is using Paul and Apollos to bring to light the mystery of the gospel in their lives. He's tasked with the responsibility of serving Jesus in the Corinthian church and explaining the gospel in word and in deed. So he doesn't look to them for approval or validation. He looks to Christ. And now Paul's not saying, it doesn't matter what I do here. I can do whatever I want. You can't say anything about it. Because later on we know Paul says, you guys are my testimony. You're my letter. It's the people of Corinth. You guys believe Jesus and you're following me now. That's, that's my authority. And the way that I lived among you is my authority. And so Paul is coming along and trying to bring a course correction, bring admonition to them. And this means sometimes the role of, of a pastor, of a teacher, is not encouragement, but admonishment. A reminder and a warning of what you've been taught, which is aimed at not only what you know, but what you do. So it's, an admonishment is, an, is also an appeal to your conscience. It's something that's generally like, you know this, but you're not doing it. Like, let's get back to what, what we know. And... Uh, Paul is doing the same thing with them. And some things, sometimes we don't know. So he's also bringing instruction along with his admonishment. Paul's like the wise foreman who knows how the job is supposed to go and how to keep things straight. His authority is from Christ for the gospel and he is instructing them on their pretensions in judging him. And he reminds them God's the judge. Don't make a judge, judgment about anyone ahead of time, he says in verse 5, before the Lord returns. Now, it's, it's interesting as I think about this. When do we write somebody off? You know? We think to ourselves, like, oh, that person, they didn't come to church. They only came to church three times last month, you know? Forget about them, you know? In my own life, I, I think it's interesting. I, I, I'm certain that I was written off at some point in my, by my family. Although my mom, I know my mom never stopped praying for me because she always told me, and I know she just prayed. That's what she did. Um, and God answered those prayers. And yet, I, I had written myself off, <laughs> you know, at one point. I was just like, I'm done with all this. Like, forget about it. But even as I ran away from God, he just said, okay, there's kind of like two schools. Like, you can learn uh, symbolically from people, and it's really kind of a good way to learn. Or you just run into walls and just go to the school of hard knocks. You know, I'm just kind of stubborn and, and mule-headed. And so I just, I wanted to go to the school of hard knocks, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose it again, you know, but I did learn. I mean, I, I graduated from it, and uh, I learned. I actually learned what God wanted me to learn even when I was kicking against him and rebelling. And so even you know, as, as, we, as we're reaching out to people, as we're walking with people in Christ, and we, we, it looks to us in the moment or in a, in a period of time where it's like, 
oh well, I, gotta, I guess I got to pass judgment. You know, they're just, they never love Christ or they're never going to follow him or I give up, you know. I don't, I don't, I don't think we, we need to give up too quickly. Paul's saying don't pass judgment before, before the time because God has lessons to teach us that look like, you know, it's like, God, I really just want to serve the devil. Could you just let me do that for a while? It's like, I, you don't really want to do that, but if, you know, if you want to try it out, like, I'll get you a part-time gig. And for me, like, it didn't take long to just understand just the vacuous and shallow nature of the promises of the world. Like, they're as empty as Napoleon Dynamite's promise that all of your wildest dreams are going to come true. And it's just so empty. You know, I thought I was running into the fullness of life, and I just ran into a dark hole, and then started to realize that I had donkey ears growing off of my head, and I couldn't talk anymore. If you've seen Pinocchio... Look it up. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Little kids go to the pool hall and turn into jackasses. Okay? Like literally. And uh, that's what I did. And so God just grabbed a hold of me and, and brought me out of that. But even during that time, I was like, the things that I learned during that time have been invaluable to me at this point in my life and even going forward. And so Paul is saying, don't pass judgment before time. He's saying, it's the same for your leaders. These guys have been given leaders. They've been given teachers. And then they're boasting about their teachers as if somehow they are responsible for their teachers. And Paul says, how can you boast about what you've been given as a gift? You know? It's like boasting about how awesome you are in business because you started out with a million-dollar loan from your father. Like, oh, I'm a genius of business. Like, I bet you are. Like... It's not too hard when you start out with a million bucks and more. Why are you boasting about things when you received them as a gift? And Paul, this is, a, this is important because we have gifts. We have abilities that God has given us to build up the church. And we could tend to become pr- proud of those things or prideful about those things and say, well, well, I have discernment or I have this or I, you know, I do this or that. <clears throat> and it's just a gift given so that we can share it with the church. Like, don't boast about things you've been given as a gift. It's just ridiculous. So God, Paul is making just a very clear argument in that, in that sense. He, he's calling them back to understand, like, who they really are. Because he's saying you shouldn't be boasting about one teacher over another and becoming arrogant. Like, oh, I follow this teacher, but you don't? Like, oh, that's ridiculous. I only read this translation of the Bible, and you only read this one? You're ridiculous. Like, it, this arrogance is what, he, what he's getting at. It's this divisive, splitting, like, I don't know, just wickedness that comes between people. I'm better than you because this is what I do and you don't do it. That's, there's nothing like that in the church. We've been given the gift by grace of righteousness. So I, I, can, I can confidently say, like, I am right in God's sight because I believe in what Jesus did, not because of something special in me. It's a gift. So Paul is, is coming against the way that they think. And he, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, the scripture says, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God, and we capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. To be arrogant about somebody else or to show favoritism within the church or to think that you're better than someone is a pretension, is a false 
way of thinking. And, it, and Paul's coming against it and teaching it to, be, to, be, to obey Christ. To think that you're better than someone else is not to obey Christ. So when should we evaluate someone? Halfway through the test? When should we write someone off? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Our pretensions, if not properly addressed and examined, can pull us off course. And God has given us servant leaders whose perspective can help us stay the course and who are charged with teaching the gospel. We cannot fully evaluate ourselves, especially when our evaluation leads to arrogance and division. God will judge these things in his church. And so God gives teachers, God gives leaders, not because they're better, because they're part of the body. Christ is better. Christ is the one who's better than everyone. He's the standard. He's the head. He's the leader. And we're all following him with the different gifts that we've been given. And we contribute to the body in that way. So for myself, I have a responsibility to, to know and to be involved in, in people's lives. And if I don't take that seriously, and I just take my job as standing up here and spouting off sermons, and I, never, I don't know people, I'm missing, I'm missing my my management. I'm missing my responsibility of stewardship that God has given me. So next is our, our presuppositions or our culturally constructed Christ. In, in verse 8, he says, you think you already have everything you need. You think that you're already rich. You begin to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you, you were reigning already for then we would be reigning with you. He said, I think sometimes God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become spectacles to the entire world, to people and angels alike. And he talks about going hungry and thirsty, and he says, we're, every, we're, like, we're like the world's garbage. And that's an okay translation. But he's using a word that refers to the scum that you would scrape off of your feet, off of your sandals, like when you step in something that you... It's just nasty scum, and you scrape it off. It's just like, yeah, It's something that you don't even want on the bottom of your shoe. And Paul's saying, we are that scum. We're, we're the ones that get scraped off. We're like everyone's, we're like the scum of the world is another way that the ESV translates it. It's a great translation, right up to the present moment. So Paul's, that's an interesting ministry description, you know, mission statement. So what does the good life look like? This is what Paul continues to challenge in the Corinthians and in us. We all in our cultures have an idea of what the good life is. The good life is a term that I'm not referring to like just like a, a corona commercial. I'm referring to a, a thought process that's been going on ever since Socrates and Aristotle and these guys were arguing for what the good life is and, and they were trying to create structures and ways of living the good life. They were trying to snap chalk lines in philosophy of like, here's how you stay on the and live the good life. And so what are our presuppositions about the good life? What, what do we think of when we think about following Jesus? What does it look like to us? That's the challenge that Paul is laying out to these, to these Corinthians. He, he contrasts the way that they live against the way that he lives. It's an important question for us. Do we think of living like a televangelist? like a rich pastor or do we think of living in poverty is there a, like a prescribed way to follow Jesus it's interesting to think about Jesus says to one poor poor woman like she puts 
two mites into the offering basket after other people are putting, you know, thousands of dollars and blowing trumpets. He says, she gave more than anyone. Right? Like, what do you mean, Jesus? Because if we add it up, that's not true. <laughs> right? And uh, Jesus says to a rich young ruler who seems really righteous, you know, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He says, go sell everything you have and, and follow me. You know? So is that, okay, is that how we live the good life? Sell everything we have and follow Jesus? Well, it was for him. It was for that young man. Because he, he, he was basically saying, I obey all the rules. I obey, you know, I obey all the Ten Commandments. I obey God. So then God says to him, do this. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you don't obey God. God's telling you to do something and you're being disobedient to it. So our calling is, is almost as unique as we are in some ways. God has made us with special gifts and callings and abilities that he wants to use to build up his body. He does give us a context and a purpose for what he's doing in our life. And ultimately, God's calling for all of us is to look like Christ. So if we think about that, what was Jesus' retirement package like? What was Jesus' vacation home like? What was Jesus' health care? What kind of car did he have? I mean, what kind of tunic did he have? Like, how did he end up? God is calling us to be like Jesus. Like, what do you know about Jesus' story? It's very humbling to, to just sit and think about who Jesus is and what he was called to. But it exposes the lie that we believe that the good life is somehow outside of what God would lead us to do or what God would call us to do. That the good life, we, could, we can have both, you know, sort of the American dream and we can follow Jesus. That we can just, this is what the Corinthians are doing. They're saying, Paul, you don't measure up because here's how you follow Jesus in Corinth. This is what it looks like. You reign as kings. You don't work in the marketplace. And Paul is saying, no, this is how you follow Jesus. This is how God has called me to follow him and what I've been doing. I wish you were kings, right? <laughs> he, he's being very sarcastic at this point. But he's, he's calling out their, their, uh, their presuppositions about what following Jesus should look like in Corinth and should look like anywhere and should look like for us. What are our presuppositions about the good life? And how does that line up with what Jesus is calling us to do? Because the good life is the life of faith. And when we are evaluated, when God judges us, when we get to that point, we're never going to regret faith decisions that we made. We're never going to regret prayer. We're not going to wish to ourselves, I wish I would have saved up more money once it all becomes worthless. We're not going to think to ourselves like, oh, I wish I would have, you know, had a bigger something or other or finally got this one thing. It's going to all become utterly meaningless someday. It's, we talked about it's just going to be burned up. It's going to be gone. So why, do, why would we labor so diligently to build up these things that are just going to be swept away? What are the things that we can labor for that won't be swept away? You know, I, I thought about, like, what is, what is that? Like, there's nothing that you can take with you. You know, it's like the guy that shows up in heaven with a big duffel bag that he can barely carry. He's arguing with Peter, you know, at the gates. And finally, Peter lets him in carrying this duffel bag. And the angel's like, what did he have in the bag, Peter? And he's like, oh, it was just like a whole bunch of paver stones. It was like all these gold bars, you know, because all the streets are paved with gold. Um, he's like, I'll just, you know, I'll let him keep them. But uh, 
It's just worthless. All this stuff is so worthless compared to what God is calling us to. And what does the good life look like for us? That's the challenge. That's the challenge to our culture. Because our culture, our culture is advertising and shouting what the good life looks like every second of every day in so many ways. You know? The artillery of like magazine covers as you walk through the, the checkout aisle. You know? As you walk through the checkout aisle, just reflect for a moment about what the good life should be. Like the checkout aisle is telling you what the good life should be, you know, suggestive sale, selling you the good life. TV commercials. I mean, it's just like you're inundated with messages about what the good life should be. And Paul is, is challenging the Corinthians here and saying, look, here's what following Jesus looks like, you guys. It's not the good life. It's not what you guys, it's not what your wisdom would say, would say it is. What does a mature believer look like? Paul says, be careful in evaluating. It doesn't look like Corinthian success or even respectability. He didn't live up to their standards and and how quickly we forget where we've come from. He says, you guys think you're already there. You've already arrived. You know, they've begun to follow Jesus and they're just sort of assuming based on who they follow that they somehow have the same status as that person, but their life doesn't reflect it. When we're not ready to do a job, we get, we get we're, it's pretentious to sort of think that we can just do that just based on our inexperience. Like I was telling this roofer, like, you know, why are we snapping these lines? It doesn't make sense, you know? There's another roof that I was on. It was a 12-12 pitch, so it's a 45-degree angle. And it was like a huge barn, and we had to load all the roofing on it. And so the roofing conveyor, like, the roofing conveyor sends packages of roofing up the conveyor and you can grab them off and you go set them on the roof you know this roof was so steep we had to build platforms to walk along and so loading the roofing was really hard because you basically could just lean back and then grab the roofing like this and kind of lift it up so there was this guy working with us that was seriously like a wwf like wrestler this guy named jay like he actually was trying out for the seahawks like this guy was a monster right so he's like, I'll lift the, the bundles, right? So he just stands on the end of the conveyor and he takes the bundle of roofing and lifts it like this and hands it above his head. And then we would stand on a platform above him and grab it and walk and go do it. He did like two pallets worth of roofing like that. And this is like 100, 125 pounds. He's just grabbing it and going like that, right? And I'm like, I'm amazed. I'm just like, dang. And there's a school teacher working with us named Scott for the summer, funny guy. And so then we get to the other side of the roof to load that side of the roof. And Scott goes, I'll, I'll grab the roofing. And I'm like, Scott, I don't think you want to do that, man. That is really heavy stuff. And Scott looks at me and goes, don't underestimate my power. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I still remember that quote. It's so funny. I'm like, all right, man, go for it. So he gave, <laughs> it's so funny, man, to watch it. He totally failed. It's so heavy. So he grabs the first one. He's like, yeah, you know, and he has like, 60 more to go so then the next one is like you know and I can see he's already getting weaker and then the third one like breaks because it's floppy so sometimes they just break you know but Jay could just hold it with his hands and just so he's like and just like drops it on his face then I have to call down to the truck guy to stop the conveyor because they're just coming continuously you know so like all right tap out like you go haul roofing Scott Jay take over and he just did a whole nother pallet, just like, so 
He told me he drank like a case of Mountain Dew a day, and I think I believe him. So God, Paul is challenging the Corinthian, like, you guys aren't ready to do the heavy lifting that you think you're ready to do. You guys, you're saying to Paul, like, don't underestimate our wisdom. And he's saying, you don't have wisdom. Wisdom is the application of what you know. And what you guys are living out right now is divisiveness and factionalism and arrogance and division. Like, that's, that's not good. That's not the wisdom of Christ. You guys aren't ready to do what you think you can do. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us of the heroes of the faith. What does the good life look like? You know, because by faith, people accomplish so many things. In, in Hebrews 11, the scripture says, through faith, the people in the, in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions and quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Uh, their weakness was turned to strength and they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. But then he also says some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips and others were chained in prisons and some died by stoning and some were sawn in half and others were killed with the sword and some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. And they were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains and hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God has something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. These guys were saying, we're already perfect. We look at our life. We have the good life. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. You need to follow Jesus. That might be being called to get sawn in half or to become strong in battle. Like, we just want the first half of the list. Like, I overcame everything through faith, and now I just have everything. And, and some people are destitute and driven from society, but they're too good for the world. The Bible says, like, their faith earned them that good reputation. So be careful how we evaluate people's faith. And be careful what you understand about the good life. Paul says, the scum of the world, that's what we are. In 1 Corinthians 4, he, he said, Instead, I think sometimes God has put the apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. He's just referencing in their culture how when you win a battle, you take some of the captives, you know, after you beat them real good, tie them up, chain them up, and then you parade them through the town. You're like, we have the Renton Parade. It would be like we'd get people from Kent or whatever and just drag them on chains like down, down the city and we'd spit on them and throw stuff at them and, you know, uh, Kent, you know, and kick them. Or maybe Auburn. <laughs> uh, and so, hey, you know, Seattle would do it to us. I'm not even going to mention Bellevue. So, but it's just this idea of Paul saying, like, I want you guys to understand what, what it looks like for me to follow Jesus. God, God has put us on display. And, he, and again, I just want to stress, like, God's not calling you to just, like, a, a terrible life that's just going to be horrible and you're chained up and dragged down the street and kicked and sawn and whipped and jeered at because that is the American dream to have yourself chained to, to debt so deep that you can't get out of it and you're chained and whipped and dragged along by your schedule so you can't even live a life that's being taken captive true freedom Jesus set us free for freedom it's for freedom that Christ has set us free Freedom to follow him and live the good life. Not constrained by all the lies of the American dream and all these things that, that pretend to be freedom that really aren't. 
So Paul is, Paul is challenging their presupposition of what the good life looks like. And last of all, progression. Living by God's power. So Paul says, I sent Timothy to you. And just... Paul says, you know how I lived among you. I've become your father in the faith because I preached the gospel to you. Imitate me. That's incredible. That's an incredible thing. It almost sounds arrogant until we look at Paul's life. And it's so important for us, I think, to be able to have somebody who God has put in your life that you can imitate, that you trust, that is following Jesus. That's not, not somebody who you don't know, who's like you heard on YouTube. Somebody who you see their life. Because Paul lived among him. He says, you guys know how I lived among you. And, you know, honestly, I, I'm probably not that one. I'm, I've, been, I've become so busy in all the stuff that our, that, that our church's vision, like, calls me to do that I just, I just get wrapped up in, like, all the administrative stuff. So you see me just running around, like, hey, John, you're nice. Like, oh, maybe. Do you know? <laughs> like, sometimes. I'm just, I get so wrapped up. Like, I get, just, I get pulled away from the people that God has called me to be, like, with and to know. It's, it's ridiculous to me. In some, in some respects. But imitation is interesting. He says, imitate me. You know, if you ever trained, like if you ever learned how to fight or learned how to wrestle or you took some kind of a class, the instructor kind of stands in front of everybody and moves around and then all the people kind of imitate the instructor like little robots. And I, I found like as I was training with, with people, like I would just copy their movement and I didn't really know why I was doing it, you know. And then after a while, the imitation sort of becomes something that I own and I understand it. I understand what I'm doing after a short time of imitation. Like, oh, I see why you're, I see why you step back or like, I see why that hurts so much when you punch me in the face, you know, because of where you put your feet. And now I understand why you move your body so weirdly. And uh, imitation is like that. It's like when you start out, you just start imitating and you see your children do it, your little ones, you know. I think one of the first words that Zoe, our daughter, said was, wow. Because Angie and I always said, wow, when we would show her stuff, you know? And it was like, oh, that's weird. And then uh, where did she hear that from, you know? And then I remember watching the Sonics game one night and like, remember the Sonics? That's how old I am. And so I'm watching the Sonics and there's like a horrible call, you know? I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And like almost three-year-old Zoe's sitting on the couch with me and she goes, what the hell? <laughs> and Angie's like, oh. Where did she learn that from? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Zoe, who are you hanging out with? <laughs> like, we just imitate. We imitate those that we're trying to learn from. So it's, it's, so, it's so, like, mind-numbingly simple. But I think it's easy to pass over. Like, find somebody who you know is following Jesus and get to know them. Like, how do they pray? How do they read the word? How do they interact with other people? In Hebrews chapter 12... Paul is, Paul is calling these people, he, Paul is admonishing and, and correcting these people in, in sort of harsh tones that we translate out of it in English, but um, he says, or Hebrews says, have you forgotten the encouraging words of, that God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, 
as he does all of his children, it means you are illegitimate and you're not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So make, take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees and mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Paul says, I'm not writing these things to you to shame you. He's not trying to shame them into living like he's living. He's writing those things to remind them of who they are in Christ. The gospel militates against shame. Shame says, I am worthless. Shame says, I am no good based on what I've done. And the gospel overcomes our shame because of the way that God does away with our guilt. I did this and I I sinned. But then when we sin, we have an advocate. If anyone sins, we can come to Jesus and receive forgiveness of that sin by faith in what he's done. And he says, when you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness. So the gospel begins to work against our shame and take away the shame that we we feel that we walk around with by taking away the guilt of our sin. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's not admonishing these people to shame them into better living as Christians. Paul is reminding them, admonishment is to be reminded of who you are really and who you're living like now. This is who you are, but this is where you're living. You don't have to live like that. You can live like this. You can live like you're a child of God. You don't have to be against one another. You can be united. You don't have to put up one teacher against another. You don't have to pretend that you're somehow wiser than you are. You can humble yourself and say, I need to learn. God sends teachers to do this. 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Timothy is the guy that Paul trained up, the guy that he's sending to Corinth. And Paul writes a letter to Timothy. We call it the pastoral epistle. He's writing to Timothy to teach him how to lead churches. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You've heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Paul's authority in teaching was based on how he lived and what he said. They lined up, and then he says, Timothy, what you've seen in me, teach these things to faithful men, to others who will be able to teach others as well. Pass it on. So the la- lastly, sorry, a whole chapter, you know. I told the guys in the cadre, like, I'm going to go along. And they're like, you better not. Um... The power of God. All of this comes down to this very end. Paul says, don't pass judgment wrongly. Don't think that you're already arrived. You need to understand that you, you, you're, you need to grow. This is all geared at our growth. He says, I'm not saying these things to shame you, but so you can remember that the life following Christ is not just a bunch of pretentious speeches, but it's about the power of God, living by the power of God. He said the kingdom of God is not in words but in power is like the literal translation of that. The good news of Jesus is that we get the spirit of God 
and we become new creatures, raised to new life and new relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Spirit is the indwelling power of God in us. The power not just, is not just strength or might, but effective power. It's to be able to. That's what the power is. It's the power to be able to follow God, the power to be able to overcome our sin, the power to be able to make right choices. This is the confidence that God has in his grace to empower us. It makes us able. God's grace and power make us grow, and God chose us to bear fruit. So lastly, this is the very end. What does it mean for you? What is the good life? Reflect on what you think about that, but evaluate it in light of the word. Evaluate it in light of what Jesus has called you to. Who knows you? Who really knows you? Who knows what you're struggling with? Who knows that everything's just not fine? How are you doing? Fine? Good? Like, does someone know what you need prayer for? Does somebody know what you need help with? Who do you consider yourself accountable to? And what are your goals for spiritual growth? Have you thought to yourself, I want to grow spiritually. This is, I, want to, I want to make that a goal this year. All of this Paul is writing to free these, people, these Corinthians from their pretensions, from their presuppositions, so that they can progress in Christ that they could live by the power of God. And this admonishment is for us, too, at Harambe. And here, here's the admonishment for Harambe as I thought through this. The admonishment is for le- me and the leaders is that I don't know what to admonish. That's the problem, right? Like, I have gotten so wrapped up in tasks and stuff that I just don't know people as well as I should. I don't know how to help, let alone bring correction to people because I'm disconnected. My job as a, as a manager, as a steward of the gospel, is sort of like halfway being accomplished in a sense, because I can proclaim the gospel all week long. I can, I can preach the gospel to new kids every week, <clears throat> and yet not knowing people and not being known by people is, is not a healthy way to, to be a leader in the church. <clears throat> Peter says this, 1 Peter 5, Now a word to you who are elders in the church, I too am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I too share in his glory, will share in his glory when he's revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, for not, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. When the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. <clears throat> This is my, really, the admonishment for Harambe is to, to us, to me as a leader and to the elders. Uh, elder, <laughs> what does he say? Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you and watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. And I just want to encourage you, Harambe Church, like here we are. God is bringing healthy and exciting changes to our church this year, to our leadership this year to our direction this year. I'm, I'm really excited about what God is doing. And for God to accomplish what he's going to accomplish, we need to be more unified. God wants to bring us together as a church.
to be on the same page, to understand where the chalk lines are that we're snapping in the city. Because we're not roofing the whole city. <laughs> we're, just, we're just doing our part that God has called us to. And there's a very specific sort of calling that God has given us, and it's exciting to me to be able to pursue it with a clean conscience and with a clear calling. And the leadership, starting with me, has just not made that clear, has not made that it's not as clear as that needs to be. And that's what I'm laboring toward. That's what we're working toward this year. On April 15th, that's coming up, uh, 12.30 to 2, the all-church lunch meeting. We're having an all-church meeting. You're all invited, and especially the people that are not here. You know, we, we attend Harambe like two out of the four Sundays a month. And so if there's someone that's, that's not here, remind them. Get it on your calendars. Be here on April 15th so we can begin to talk about and dialogue about the changes that God wants to bring to our church and what he's going to call us to to do to be part of that. Uh, Lunch is provided, so you don't have to go bring something else. I don't know what, I don't know what it is yet. It'll be, it'll be lunch, you know. Uh, So Harambe, God's judgment frees us to pursue our calling to follow Jesus let God be your judge in what he's called you to do. Don't, don't compare yourselves with others. Don't get caught up in that. Just pursue what he's called you to do. Through instruction and discipline, we can live by his power. Plug into learning. Become an ongoing learner. Let's examine our pretensions, correct our presuppositions, and expect progress. Expect the power of God to change and transform us, to grow us, not only as an individual, but to grow us together as his church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the calling you've given us. I thank you for the opportunity that we have in Renton. And I thank you for the church you've gathered here, Lord, to follow you. Lord, I do pray for the leadership of Harambe. Lord, starting with myself, help us, Father, to pursue leadership in the way that you've outlined it, not according to our own standard. Lord Jesus, not according to the way that we've been going, Lord. Bring change to the way that we're acting, the way that we're leading. Bring health to our church. Bring unity to Harambe Church, Father, and make your vision clear for us as we go forward. Lord, I I expect great things from you as we move forward in this city. You're filling it with the nations. You're filling it with people who don't know you. And here we are, Lord, people who have the truth, the mystery of the gospel to reveal to the world. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we would not be living in our flesh, not be pursuing things that are going to come to naught, but Lord, that we would be filled with your spirit and living by the power of God and pursuing the kingdom first, trusting you for everything else that comes after that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to communion every week.